Today is the last in our series on baggage. How many people are like, I'm so glad that this is the end because I don't think my emotions could take any more? Oh, come on, don't be like that. I don't know about you, but I'm at the end of myself. I've had enough of this series because um, my, you got to understand that as a preacher, God makes you go through everything before you can preach it. So um, you, you just think I get up here and my life's all together, but the reality is, is this, this series deals with my stuff as much as it deals with any of your stuff, and what I find is that I have to go through it first before I can deliver it. Um, actually, I know, a, I know a pastor that physically feels in his body what's happening in his church, so when there was a problem happening in the church where some of his leaders were working against him, he started getting internal bleeding because it was God showing him that there was internal bleeding in his church. I'm glad I don't have that one that I go through, and um, but I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad that we've come to the end of the series, and uh, it's going to be a great morning this morning, because I'm not sure my emotions can take any more, I'm not sure I can cry any more than I've already cried, but I tell you what, I think that you and I can, res- we can handle a little more healing this morning, yeah, we can handle a little more of God setting us free this morning, I can handle a little bit more of the Holy Spirit coming into my life this morning and taking over, I can handle a little bit more of Jesus and a little bit more of God, and so that's what's going to happen this morning, next week, um, Trinity's going to be speaking, and uh, she's got a great message lined up. And then we start a new series on the book of James. The series is called Teach Me How to Live. Then we're going to go through nine weeks in the book of James, because the book of James actually covers the most practical, awesome things that we could ever want to know about how to live this Christian life. And so I'm really excited about what's coming up. And there's also a conference happening as well. Right. Are you ready this morning? Yes. Do you want to know how to unpack your bag? Something like, no, I'm going to keep it packed. That's easier. You know, I was talking to someone just the other day, and um, something happened that set off their emotional allergy and, uh, around something that triggered them off. And, and I said, maybe you should find out why you react like that. And they go, no, no, I'm cool. I'll just, I'll just keep it suppressed for a little bit longer. How does that sound? You see, the, the whole goal of this series is not to hurt anyone, but it's to help you find freedom. The whole goal of why Jesus came was so that you and I could have freedom. The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly, John 10.10. The goal is to make sure that we find freedom. The goal is to make sure that we get the stuff that has bogged us down in our lives out of our lives. The goal is to empty our bags at some point, and then not just empty them, but keep them empty. How many people understand what I'm talking about where you you have a God moment, you have a God encounter, you feel like God's unpacked some of your baggage, but then you feel like about three months later, you have to talk to me this morning, otherwise I'm going to feel really lonely. I don't know about you, but I sometimes I feel like my life can be a little bit like this. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. And it just feels like she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. And it just keeps, like, get dealt with that. And it, she'll be coming around the mountain. And it just keeps coming up over and over again. Does anybody, am I the only one that seems to have that problem? Obviously, I should quit. May everybody else pastors of the church and get on with it. I think that there's a couple of things that stop us 
from unpacking our bags. And I, I just want to speak to those a little bit. And then I want to finish off this morning with addressing what I call the guilt factor, because I think guilt plays a big, big role in us not being able to unpack our bags of the emotional stuff that we've carried around. The first thing that we have to understand if we're going to unpack our bags is that we can't limit the work of Jesus in your life. It's going to get a little bit in your face in a moment. It says here in Mark 6, 1 to 3, it says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. So Jesus has gone into Nazareth. He's starting to speak in the synagogue. People are just astonished. They're blown away by the things that he is saying. Can I suggest to you that we live in a time in this world where there are more Bible colleges than there ever has been on the face of the planet. There are more uh, Christian radio than we've ever had. There's Christian TV. There are more Christian books out there than you could ever dream of. We have more versions of the Bible than you and I have underpants. Like there is Christian TV. We got Christianity coming out of our ears, yeah? The problem is I don't think in the church we have Christianity coming out of our hearts. I think we have Christianity coming out of our ears. We can go on YouTube, we can go on to Google, and you can find anything. Please be careful when you Google anything that you're trying to discover, especially around theology, because there's a lot of nut jobs that put themselves on Google and say a lot of dumb things, and you'll get confused. So please be smart about who, but we can access everything. Just about every church on the face of the planet is online now. Morning, those that are watching. And, and every, like, we've got Christianity coming out of our ears, but I don't think that it's made a difference to the way that Christianity comes out of our hearts. We're, we've got more stuff going on today. There's more stuff about Jesus out there than there ever has been before. So why is there not more of Jesus in us or in the church? If we've got more Jesus out there than anything else, why don't we have more Jesus in the church? Why don't we have more things going on. Why is it that the problems in society are the same problems that are in the church? Alcohol, drugs, pornography. Come on, why is it, if we've got more of Jesus out there than we've ever had before, we've got more teaching, more books, more Christian radio, more TV, more than anything else, we have access to everything. You can even listen to the Bible while you go for a walk on audio or whatever you want to do. We've got so much coming in our ears, but I feel that we don't have much of Jesus coming out of our hearts. And one of the reasons that I believe that we struggle to see what God wants to do in our worlds or that things haven't much changed or that the church, actually when you look at it to a certain degree, and when I say the church, I'm not just talking about us, I'm talking about the church. Some of the reason why I think that we don't see some of the things that we should be seeing in the life of a church is this thing that I've been touching on the last two weeks, and it's called the Nazareth town attitude. It's this whole thing where Jesus is, is there in his town, and I want to take you on a journey through this because I think we're going to find that maybe there are some things in our world that are stopping us from actually seeing God from doing something significant. It goes on, and it says, and many hearing him in verse 2 were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things and what wisdom is this that is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Joseph? I don't know how to say that name, Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. 
Here's Jesus saying all this stuff which blew their minds. They were astonished by it, that they even acknowledged the fact that he did incredible, mighty miracles through his own hands, but they just couldn't get past that. Isn't this the carpenter, Mary's son, the brother of James? His sisters are here too. And then all of a sudden, they got offended by what he was saying because they had become so familiar with him. And I don't think modern Christianity has us so familiar with God that we, we view Jesus as a good teacher. We, we view Jesus as a good man. We view Jesus as someone that's full of grace and mercy. We view Jesus as our Savior. I just don't think we view Jesus always as our Lord. I think that we think that Christianity sometimes is a democracy, when in reality it's a theocracy, it's a kingdom, and there's a king, and the king's in charge. I think we've become so familiar with all the out clauses. I don't know about you, but I've become so familiar with all the out clauses in Scripture. Oh, it's grace, mercy, goodness. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. Rather than thinking maybe I shouldn't sin in the first place. Sorry, it's getting a bit intense. I think that we've become so familiar with God that we just don't acknowledge that he's Lord anymore. We acknowledge him as Savior. We acknowledge his grace and his mercy. But when things start to go wrong in our worlds, we, we think he's mean and he's, un, and he's cruel. In verse 4, it goes on and it says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Three things. His own country, his own relatives, his own house, it all speaks of familiarity. They had reduced him to their perspective, how they felt about a situation. You know, um, I might stand up here sometimes and say some stuff, and you guys go, oh, well, that was awesome. Thank you, Pastor Craig, for sharing that. It was really, really fantastic. At home, when I'm trying to help my kids understand something, Sometimes, because they don't see me as Pastor Craig at home, they just see me as dad, and I'm trying to explain something and give them a life lesson, I get the eye roll, and the, yeah, 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 we know, we know. Do you always have to use the Bible? You know, why? Because you hear me and you think, oh, he's the pastor. Hopefully you think, I've got to listen. Well, they just go, it's just dad, I'm familiar with him. This is what he always does. He always gives us a little scripture and a little lecture around how to do life and roll their eyes and yeah, 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 yawn, yawn, yawn. They're familiar. And so they don't always take the same advice because some of you are like that. It's like, how come my kids listen to that person, but when I tell them the same thing, they don't listen? Hello? It's because of the familiarity. And here's Jesus, so filled with the power of God, ready to do amazing things, ready to do miracles. He's ready, he's willing, he's raring to go, and their response is, isn't he just one of us? Isn't he just the carpenter? Who does he think he is? He's no better than us. We grew up with him. We played in the playground with him. We used the same toilet at school that he used. Who does he think he is? And you know, sometimes we come along to church, and this is what happens, we've been in church a long, long time, and the preacher gets up and he says, Jesus can heal, Jesus can set you free, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, heard that for 35 years. Come on, I'm just being honest this morning. God's able to do miracles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And you've heard the preacher and you've heard people talk about that for years and years and years and talk about how Jesus does this and Jesus does that. But, but when you look at your life, you're like, man, I, I've heard all this stuff for so long, but when I look at my life, I've still got the same problems, the same people around me. I don't expect much to happen in church. I'll turn up because I know I'm meant to, but I just don't expect anything to happen in church. And my question to you and my question for me is this, is what's happened to our expectation? What happened to that thing that you first believed when you got saved, where life was amazing and God was incredible? What happened to our faith? What happened to our attitude? towards this Jesus that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He healed yesterday, he heals today, he heals forever. He, he sets free yesterday, today, and he'll set free forever. What, whatever happened to our expectation that we rock up the church and go, man, I know that today I can leave here different than I came in the door. I may have come in depressed, but I can leave full of joy. I may have come in sick, but I can leave healed. What happened to us that we lost that expectation, that we lost that faith, that we lost that attitude that Jesus is this amazing God who does everything for us and sets us free and died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, that forgives us for all of our sins, that gives us His grace and His mercy and His love and His goodness and His kindness, that He's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. What happened to us that we just walk in and it's just like yawn, 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 heard it all before, nothing ever changes. You see, the Nazareth attitude squeezes faith down so that people attend church, but they don't attend Jesus. The familiarity squashes your faith down so that you attend church and you love God, but you just don't attend Jesus. You think that it's for everybody else, but it's not for you. And in verse five it says, now he could, that's Jesus, do no mighty work there. Because of this attitude of familiarity and everything, he could do no mighty work there. Now, the question you might be asking yourself right now is, Craig, are you telling me that you can dictate by your attitude how God will manifest himself in my life? Yes, absolutely. Some of you are like, man, I've been in church for so long and nothing ever changes. I would suggest to you, not in every case, but I would suggest to you that it's your attitude, your sense of expectation and faith towards the creator of the world that is determining whether he can do any mighty works there. Here's my question for you. What's your there? What's your there that you've become so familiar with him that you just don't believe that he's really gonna do any mighty works there. What area in your life is your there? The area that you don't think God can do anything there. Where is that? What part of your world is that? Goes on in verse six and it says, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their Unbelief. I don't know about you. I want God to marvel because of my belief. I want God to marvel because of my worship. I want God to marvel because of my faith towards Him. I don't want God to be marveled by my unbelief. You see, three things about the hometown attitude that we see in the scriptures. The first thing is that they are offended at Him for saying what He said. You know, I see that in the church today. People get offended. Why? Well, I, I don't. 
I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think, I don't know it's in the Bible, but things have changed. Society's moved on. I don't agree with that anymore. Well, that's nice. But once again, you're not the king. You're not the creator of the world. He's in charge. He calls the shots. If that's your attitude, that you just pick bits and pieces out of the Bible that you think are good, and the bits that you disagree with, you dismiss, then he's just your savior. He's not your Lord. And this is going to sound really harsh when I say it, but I felt God say this to me. The arrogance of you and me that we would decide what should be and shouldn't be truth. I did say it would get a little in your face. This morning they were offended at him. They were so acquainted with him that they humanized him. They philosophized him. I don't know if that's a word, but I've brought it up. They taught themselves out of it because he's just a carpenter. And it created a climate of unbelief. And here's the crazy thing about unbelief. Unbelief doesn't change the power of God. God could still move. God can still heal. But your unbelief changes his ability to move. He could not do any mighty works there. Don't limit the work of Jesus in your life. Second thing is allow the Holy Spirit to open your bag. I don't know about you, but I have found time and time and time again in my life, the Holy Spirit comes along and he just puts his finger on stuff. Just starts convicting you about particular things. He just starts putting his finger on. Has anybody else experienced that? Where you, it's just like, I mean, when I first got saved, seriously got saved when I was about 17 years of age, you know, the, the big issue for me right then was smoking. God would just put his finger on it. I had no problem with lying. That was all good in my books. But I found as you walk along with Jesus that the Holy Spirit just ups the ante and keeps putting his finger on things. And now even just slightly exaggerating a story or what I like to call being evangelistic, <laughs> that convicts me now. Are, are you with me? He just starts putting his fingers on things. And he's like, when he does that, really what he's saying is, hey, let me in. Let me get into that. Let me sort that out for you. Let's get rid of that stuff out of your life. Let me do that for you. And this is usually how he works. And he reveals it, and we deal with it, and then we move on. The problem is, is that if we resist what God is asking us to get out of our lives and to deal with, then what he tends to do is he allows a circumstance to come along, and that circumstance usually reveals to you how bad that issue is in your life, yes? He'll allow a circumstance to happen. He'll allow it to blow up in your face so that you will deal with it. He doesn't allow it to blow up in your face because he's trying to hurt you. He allows things to blow up in your face because he's trying to heal you. So the story of Cain and Abel is a classic example. Cain kills his brother Abel. How many people know that God knows everything? God, the Bible says that he is everywhere. He knows all things. So therefore, when he rocks up to Cain and goes, where is your brother? It's not that Jesus doesn't know where he is. Why is he asking Cain where Abel is when he knows where Abel is? He's dead in the field. 
I'll tell you why. It wasn't to punish Cain for what he had did, but he was hoping that Cain would confess because Jesus and God understands this, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So he wasn't asking Cain, where is Abel? Because he wanted to punish him. He was asking Cain, where is Abel? Because he wanted confession. Because if he confessed, he could forgive him and heal him. Instead, Cain said, I don't know. And then Cain suffered the consequences. And what we tend to do sometimes with our stuff is the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it and a circumstance, he allows the circumstance to come and we go, no, I'm not gonna tell anyone. I got too much shame and guilt around it. I'm gonna keep it secret. And then we think God's mean to us when really what he's trying to do is he just wants you to confess it. Because if you confess it, he can forgive it. He wants to heal you, not hurt you. That's our decision to hold on to our stuff that hurts us. It's not him that hurts us. You've got to let the Holy Spirit in to do the work that he wants to do because if you don't deal with it in that circumstance, the next step that God does is that he will bring someone along who will expose the problem. He will send someone into your life that exposes the whole thing. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want you to keep your bag closed. He wants to deal with your stuff, and we don't have time to read the story this morning, but in 2 Samuel 1, uh, 12, 1 to 18, is the story of David and Bathsheba. Remember, he's meant to be at war, but he's walking around the rooftops, sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop naked, which was normal on that day. That's where they had their baths on the rooftop. David knew that. He was just being a pervert, and he's walking around, and he sees her, then he calls her to come to his bedroom. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant, then he's like, whoa, I've got a problem now. So what he does is he calls her husband back from war, Uriah, and then he tries to put him tries to get him to sleep with her, but her husband won't because he said all the other men are at war and, and how bad would it be while they're fighting to put their lives at risk that I'm having fun with my wife? So he's an honorable man, so he decides not to do that. So then David's going, what am I going to do now? So then he says, oh, I'll put him on the front line. That way he'll get murdered. And he thinks he's covered it all up and it's all good until Nathan the prophet comes along. And Nathan the prophet comes along and he tells a story about a man and who, who did a similar thing to what David did, and he says to the king, what do you think should be done to this man? And David said he should be taken out the back and killed. And then Nathan turns around and says, you are that man. You see, if we don't deal with it when he puts his finger on it, he'll let a circumstance happen which brings it to the surface, and if you still won't deal with it, he'll send someone along to point it out to you. And it's not because he wants to hurt you. It's because he wants to heal you. Heal you. You see, here's great news for you and I. It's in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. that says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. In other words, God sees everything. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, the great thing for you and I is that the Bible says this, is that the word of God 
is like a tool in his hand, like a surgeon's tool. And it cuts and it separates between your soul and your spirit, even down to your joints and marrow. It separates, it gets in between those things of your soul and the spirit. In other words, what it's saying is this, is that the word of God can sort out your spiritual problems. It can sort out your soul problems. It can sort out your mental problems. It can sort out your emotional problems. Whatever it might be between your soul and spirit, the word of God can cut right down into those areas and bring about freedom. And it says here, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. It says that he sees everything, that nothing is hidden from him. So this is the thing. This is the thing. You're worried about what's in your bag. And so you've got guilt and you've got shame about the stuff that you need to deal with. Here's the thing. This scripture tells me this, is that Jesus is actually already in your bag. You don't have to invite him in. He's already in. He sees all things. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from him. He's already in your bag. And the great news about that is nothing that's in your bag shocks him. Nothing that's in your bag pushes him away. Nothing that's in your bag makes him want to run. He is right there in the bag with you and with the guilt and with the shame and with the stuff that you've done. He hasn't run away from you. He hasn't hidden from you. He is right there because he never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And the reason why you don't unpack your bag is because you're worried about what he's going to find. And you need to understand that he's in the bag with you. He doesn't avoid our sin. He comes after it because he wants us to be whole and healed. He's not scared of it. He's not ashamed of it. He's coming after it because he's like, man, I don't want my kid to suffer with that. I'm going to get in there with him or her. And the reason why we don't always understand that is because of this thing that I call the guilt factor. And here's the thing, just about every single one of us have felt guilty at some stage in our lives for something that we have done or something that we have said or the way we've treated our kids. In fact, some of you all through this series and maybe right now in this moment, you're feeling guilty right now. Some of you feel guilty and you have no idea what you feel guilty about. Have you ever had those moments where you just feel so bad and you can't even work it out what it is that you've done that makes you feel so bad? I'm the only one, okay, cool. Maybe I just have amnesia about all the bad stuff that I've done. And you feel guilty. And here's the thing. I believe this morning that God desires to remove the guilt baggage from your life because I believe that guilt is one of the major things that we have to deal with that's in our bags. I think that guilt feelings are a consequence of not dealing with something properly that we should have dealt with. With the wrongs we have committed, we can deal with them in such a way that we ignore them or we bury them or we pile stuff on top of them so that you can't see them. But the thing is, as Jesus said this, if you would let me cleanse them, I can get rid of them. And the guilt starts to weigh down your life. And here's the thing, when you allow the baggage to start collecting in your world, guilt plays the big part of keeping your bags packed. 
guilt plays the biggest part of keeping your bags packed. You'd be amazed how many men I've had come into my office over the years feeling absolutely guilty because they have a pornography problem. And they think they're the only ones. When statistics says this, that 95% of men struggle with porn and the other 5% lie about it. That was meant to be funny in that moment. But they come in and their guilt, the guilt, oh, I, I, can't, I can't tell you, oh, I can't tell you, I can't tell Everybody suffers with something. There's nothing to feel guilty about when you have a saviour that paid the price for all of it. The guilt sits there because it's secret. And when something is secret, it has power over you. But the moment you share it, the power goes out of it. You've got to share it with the right people. My mum used to say this all the time. It used to annoy me when I was little. Now, I probably use it on my own kids. I, this is what mum used to say. A problem shared is a problem halved. Have you parents that said that to you? A problem shared is a problem halved. You'd be amazed how often where I ring up someone that I consider to be my pastor and go, man, I'm really struggling with this right now. The weight and the pressure and the guilt and the shame just lifts off because I've told someone. The power's gone out of that now. Now, he's the right person to talk to because he'll help me walk through that, not condemn me, not judge me, but love me and help me walk through whatever it is that I'm struggling with, and that's what you want. But here's the thing. While you keep it secret and you try to work it out for yourself, it's only going to grow in intensity, the guilt and the shame. And here's a question for you. If you've been trying to deal with something that you've been struggling with for the last 10 or 15 years without any help, how's that going for you? How's that going for you? If you're still struggling with the same thing 15 years later after you started working it through yourself, how's that going for you? Maybe the reason why you're not having the breakthrough is because you don't understand the way that the kingdom works. We confess to God for the forgiveness of our sins and we confess to one another that we may pray for each other, that we may be healed. And you think that you can process and you can work through this yourself, but God said that's not how it works. What you need is somebody that you can talk to that can pray with you so that you'll be healed. And I'm telling you right here and right now, if you're suffering with the same thing for so long and you've not told anyone about it, the reason why you're suffering is because you haven't followed the principle of sharing it with someone that you can trust so that you may be prayed for and that you may be healed. And the thing that stops us from sharing it is this thing called guilt. Let me give you just quickly as the musicians come, let me just give you signs that you suffer from guilt and that you're not prepared to open your bag because of the guilt. First thing is this, is depression. A sign that you suffer from guilt is depression. Why? Because guilt drains us of emotional energy and ultimately produces emotional depression. When you feel guilty about something, you spend so much of your emotional energy trying to hide it, trying to cover it, trying to not let it get exposed, that it just drains you. And you will end up in depression. The second thing that's a sign that maybe you've got guilt in your life is defensiveness. Guilty people always try to justify their wrong behavior. If anybody's had a teenager in your house, you'll understand this principle. Okay, that was funny, but you don't laugh either. 
Have you ever had a teenager, maybe, maybe your teenagers are a little bit different, but have you ever had a teenager own up? Yep, that was me, I did that. Or even at seven or eight years of age, who spilt the milk all over the kitchen floor? I don't know. Or else it's, well, I wouldn't have spilt it if Madison hadn't left it on the edge of the table. If she put it in the middle of the table, then I wouldn't have spilt it. So therefore now I'm justifying my guilty act of conscience by blaming Madison. They argue about everything. They don't accept things at face value. They want to argue. Hey, that's a nice red shirt. It's not red. It's orange. No, it's red. No, it's not. You know what I'm talking about. You know these people. Everything. You just ask him a question. Hey, how's your day been? What do you want to know? Whoa. What the? Did you remember to take the rubbish out? Of course I remember to take the rubbish out. What do you think? I'm stupid? Whoa. Third sign that you suffer from guilt is judgmentalism. Guilt is quick to point out similar weaknesses in other people. I have the saying that accusation flows from a guilty conscience. Usually the thing that people accuse you of is the very thing that they're struggling with themselves. It removes the feeling of guilt if somebody is more guilty than me. In other words, yeah, well, I may not be the best husband in the world, but at least I'm not like Rimmer. It was a joke. I'm not really saying he's a bad husband, but you know what I'm saying. You've, you've had those conversations. At least I'm not like your dad. I know I'm a bit lazy around the house and I should keep my room tidy and do my chores, but at least I'm not going out to parties and getting drunk and doing drugs and sleeping around. Like somehow, because you're not doing that, that therefore eliminates your laziness around the house. (laughs) If someone is messing up worse than me, they like to point out the mess that they're making rather than look at the mess that they're making of themselves. Oh, look at his life. Oh my gosh. I thought I was bad, but look at them. Everybody, stop looking at mine and look at them. Is this getting a little too real this morning? You see, a person that is freed from guilt is not judgmental. A person freed from guilt is gracious. They're always lifting up the sinner. They lift up the flaws in other people. They encourage the person with the problem. They don't point out the person's weaknesses and hammer them over the head with it. They will not prove their point They will not bury this person because of their bad life choices. Grace comes out of a relationship with Jesus and so out of that also comes forgiveness. And the woman caught in adultery is a classic example of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus didn't condemn her like everybody else, but Jesus lifted her to his level. You see, a guilty person is always pushing people down, but a grace-filled person is always lifting people up. If you suffer from a guilty conscience, just look at how you're, whether you're always pushing people down or are you someone that's constantly lifting people up. 
Anger is another sign of guilt. Guilt often produces a short temper and impatience with others. Frustration runs on failure and it's taken out on everyone else. Man, I've done this plenty of times in my life since we've been married where I get frustrated or I'm not happy with how I'm doing things and so the failure runs out in me taking it out on those that I love the most. Because you'll put filters up around all the other people but at home you're the real you. Frustration runs on failure and is taken out on everyone else and so you're frustrated with yourself and so therefore you get angry with everybody else. Fear is another sign of guilt. Guilt produces a fear of being found out. I don't want anyone to know. Don't want anyone to know. Or they fear that God's going to judgment if they really open up about what's going on. Here's the thing, friend. We've already found out Jesus is already in your bag. And He hasn't whacked you over the head with a baseball yet. And He's not going to. He wants to heal you, remember. Blame is another sign of guilt. We balance our guilt by blaming other people. It's not our fault, it's their fault. If they had done this, if my parents had done that. People that are out to find faults seldom find anything else. If you want to find faults in somebody, you'll find them. Because that's all you're looking for. If you want to find faults in the church and faults in me as a pastor, you will find them. Because I don't hide them very well. And I know we've got lots of weaknesses. We're not perfect. Jesus didn't say the church will be perfect. He says, I'm coming back for a perfect bride. We've got a lot of work to do. The seventh thing that shows that you're suffering from guilt factor is insensitivity. A guilty person is hypersensitive to their own emotions, but insensitive to everybody else's. Have you ever met that person where they have no problem taking the mickey out of everybody else? But the minute somebody takes the mickey out of them, it's tears and anger and outbursts. So sensitive about their own feelings, but don't give a stuff about anybody else's. You touch on the smallest of things and they turn them into the biggest of mountains. Or when they talk to someone else about their issues, they don't do it gently, but they hit them with both barrels. Boom, boom. Hey, hey, uh, I'll pick on Rimmer because we've been picking on one on one. Hey, Rimmer, just, just, but I'm just going to tell you this in love. These are the problems you have. God bless you. That's not love. That's just trying to justify your, your jerkiness by saying, if you put something on, if you put, I say this to you in love on the front of it, doesn't make it loving. Come on, Christianese is just such a bad state to get into. Oh, I say this to you in love, brother. No, you don't. I, I say this because I, I care about you in the church. No, you don't. A lot of the time what people criticize you about has got nothing to do with you and everything to do with them and everything to do with their personal preferences. need to move on here's the thing guilt will stop you from unpacking the bag and guilt is something we need to release and so how do we release our guilt 
so that God can get to our bags, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to just receive his love. We've got to stop this, this thought that, that God's angry with me or that God's not going to like what he finds. Remember, God's already in the bag. He's already in the bag, which means that he loves you in spite of what it is that you think you've got to hide from him. He's already there. He's not afraid. He's not on the run. He's there with open arms just saying, hey, let's do this. Let's do this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Love is what drives him. He loves you. He's in there with you. He hasn't run away from you. And the next thing that we have to do is we have to break off this Nazareth mindset and actually receive all the promises, receive the healing, receive the breakthrough, receive Him setting you free, receive His mercy, receive His grace, receive. I, I change my language in my prayers a lot now and I, I don't pray so much for healing. I, I do this, Father, I receive your healing that you've already provided. The Bible says this, that by his stripes you are healed, not will be healed, might be healed. You are healed. He's already provided healing. So I just need to receive it. I don't have to ask for it. I just got to receive it. Salvation. He's already provided salvation for you. You don't have to ask for salvation. You just have to receive salvation. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you. We have to understand that God is right in the bag with us. He loves us. And then we just have to receive everything that he wants to give us. Healing, grace, mercy, goodness, kindness. I'll tell you what will happen to you. Your expectation and your faith will go to such a place that you never, you're not going to doubt anything that he says. You're going to read his word and rather than go, oh yeah, I've heard that before. You're going to go, man, that's a promise for me. I claim that in Jesus' name. You and your whole household shall be saved. I claim that in Jesus' name. I got loved ones. I, I thank you, God, that you're a good God who gives good gifts. So I claim that that's for me. That's for me. That's for me and my house. That's for us. Me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. God, I thank you that as my kids grow up, I don't have to worry about them walking away. As me and my house, we serve the Lord and you're faithful and you're faithful to us. And if I pursue you, you're gonna look after my family. If I put you first, you're gonna put me first. I thank you, God, that as I draw close to you, you, you draw close to me. You don't run from my stuff. You don't hide from my problems, but God, you run towards me. That you're like the father and the prodigal son who you see from afar off and you run after. Not only do you run after and embrace, but you reinstall me straight back to the position that I was before I fell. That's the kind of God. And all of a sudden, your expectation and your faith and everything starts to lift. And when the enemy comes along and says, oh, you can't do that because of this, that, and the other thing, you go, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because He is for me and not against me. Every voice that rises up against me in judgment, He shall silence. And all of a sudden, you're not burdened down by guilt and shame but you're lifted by love, grace, mercy, faith, and hope. And you walk through these doors every Sunday with a sense of expectation in your heart. God's going to change my world today. And He's going to change my family's world and my friends' world. Why don't we all stand to our feet just for a moment?